Hello students and welcome back to the lore of the Iron Kingdoms with me, Professor Caster. As mentioned earlier, I found some older archives for the lore and history of the Circle Obros. In the future, we will be reading both the older archives for the lore and the newer archives at the same time. It would be a little bit longer video, but at least we can get it all knocked out all at once so you can see the older and the newer. Uh, but for this week and next week, I'll be reading the older archives for both Circle Obros and Kodor as well. So looking forward to that. But before we begin, uh, if you're enjoying these courses, please like, subscribe, share with your friends, share with your fellow gamers as well. It helps keep this steam train rolling. It helps us keep growing the channel, which would be great. And as always, thank you so much, Privateer Press, for letting us read your fantastic lore. And let's begin the archived version of Circle Obros, the lore and their, well, I suppose how they are put together. So this should be fun. The armed might of the Circle Obros, natural chaos, elemental destruction, and primal rage. The Circle Obros is the most ancient human organization extant in Western Imoran, the product of thousands of years of coordinated efforts to master the powers of nature. Few outside the internal cabal suspect it is anything but a disorganized group of enigmatic, if individually potent, black-clad druids and their personal armies. Operating in scattered groups, the black-clads have created a network of sacred sites to channel natural powers. By the network, the druids can communicate and travel across vast distances and have become versed in the overseeing and protecting myriad fastness of the wilds. When roused to war, the Circle Obros is unsurpassed at exploiting terrain to their advantage, and striking swiftly and unexpectedly across vast distances, and in invoking destructive elemental powers. Storm thunders by their will, stone rises from the earth with a gesture, and terrifying beasts rage at their command. Those loyal to the Blackclads make their homes in the wilds. Of every nation in every sizable forest, mountain range, swamp, and desert, families live in these remote corners who are bound to the druids by ancient ties and who stand ready to lend their strength. Barbaric people have willingly entered into alliances with the Blackclads, and the druids manipulate other warlike species to fight on their behalf. When the Circle gathers for war, it does so as it has for millennia, at the head of a howling horde that would smash the cities of man and cast humanity into the everlasting dark ages. And then we have a little side panel here. Transport by stone. The uncanny ease with which the black clad and their allies can muster has long unnerved their enemies. Border patrols and sentries are useless against them. The circle has many means to gather its forces, and their knowledge of wilderness and terrain and secret byways is a considerable aid, as are the swiftness and endurance of their warriors. But the greatest asset to these movements is the network of ley line nodes and sacred sites protected by the Order. Though complex and difficult mystical rite druids can tap into these energy flows and merge with the arteries of Orboros and emerge almost instantaneously elsewhere, powerful enchanted shifting stones serve as an extension of this network. The high-ranking druids knows the rites to transport themselves to their sacred sites. But these mysteries are specialty of wayfarers. Wayfarers possess such mastery they can send themselves much farther abroad than their peers can. For, the, for this reason, wayfarers are tasked with carrying vital messages between druids and often accompany the Order's leaders. 
Utilizing this network to move sizable number of soldiers is far more difficult and it requires larger stones at major leyline intersection sites where exponentially more power converges. This may also require astrological alignment and simultaneous efforts of multiple druids and wayfarers. Therefore, armies usually travel traditionally over land, though wayfarers can more easily expedite small groups of the reinforcements across vast distances. Well, that's fun to know that they can teleport. But let's move on to the Custodians of the Apocalypse. Outsiders believe Blackclads are priests of the Devourer Worm, a primal force of destruction, and the ancient foe of Meneth, the creator of man. In truth, the druids do not worship the Devourer so much as placate it. Blacklads recognize the worm as a conscious aspect of the primal entity Orboros, and they work to ensure it remains distracted by its eternal war in Urcane against Meneth. What exists on Cain and what provides the druids mystical power is the unthinking body of Orboros. Their labors maintaining the ley line energies that are this body's circulatory system ensures it remains strong. These invisible arteries and veins can become choked by civilization. Anything that disrupts the flow of rivers, the integrity of the mountains and the hills, or the growth cycles of forest injures Oberos. When its body becomes too riddled with wounds left by the cities of civilization, the devourer worm will realize its weakening condition and return to the world to unleash unparalleled devastation and exterminate humanity. The Circle Oberos believes this apocalypse inevitable. Civilization increasingly pushed back the natural world, and even incessant warfare between nations has not diminished mankind's population. Facing this, the Blackclads insist violence on any scale against civilization is justified. Even where the great kingdom shattered, it would not be enough to reverse the imbalance, which pushes the druids to ever greater acts of destruction. In this cause, the Circle's willingly allies with cultists and barbarians. Blacklads have a deserved reputation for callousness and an uncaring attitude towards slaughter, plague, and famine. Despite this reputation, their larger work is bent towards forestalling far greater destruction. They ultimately seek to preserve a place for humanity on Cain. In meeting this ancient duty, there is no stretch of wilderness in Western Amorn outside their dominion. Their scattered territories and placements of their towering circles of mystical stones seem random to outsiders, but are carefully chosen based on the Order's understanding of the way power flows through the body of Orboros. They continually work to identify, liberate, and tap into energies that entangle the wild places of the world. Druids believe the movement of stars and planets are mystically tied to the ebb and flow of Orboros' lifeblood. By combining knowledge of ley lines with celestial conjunctions, they enact extraordinarily potent rites. And it appears we have a system of at least, you know, the ancient dominions, or the known dominions of Circle Obros. How they got this stuff, not entirely sure, but it is the breakdown of the Northern Dominion, the Eastern Dominion, and the Southern Dominion as well as the known leaders of these dominions, even though they are secret. I'm not entirely sure how the spies of our archives figure this out, but they seem to do it. Northern Dominion is controlled by a guy named Delikov. And then I will be posting the picture on our YouTube channel just so you guys can read over it. You can pause it if you want. Um, the Eastern Dominion is, of course, ran by Mozar, the desert guy. We spoke of him earlier, the blind desert dude who is insanely dangerous. 
And then, of course, the Southern Dominion is ran by Lordis, the Watcher. So, but if you want to read about everybody and how they are connected to all the Dominions, feel free to pause the video now and you can kind of just run through this on your own. I'm not going to read it because it would be too long and there's too many connection points that, uh, that would require my attention. But let's move on and continue our reading. And we have a little pamphlet here. Immediate threats to Orbros. Circle Orbros is not alone in its awareness of the energies running beneath the soils of Cain. Both the cult of Cyrus and the Arcanist of Ios are aware of these wellsprings of power and make use of them to fuel their technological, technological constructs. The cult of Cyrus... And I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. It's C-Y-R-I-S-S. If anybody has any other pronunciations, let me know in the comments. It's always nice to find out. Anyway, the cult of Cyrus has little impact on most Western Amoran, being small in scope and extremely secretive and preferring to hide its temples in remote locations. Yet for these reasons, the worshippers of the Maiden of Gear are frequently are frequent in their competition with these Circle Oberos over important leyline nodes. The cult describes these energies differently and studies them under the guise of scientific methods. But the underlying principles are identical. When Cyrusists drain these energies, it disrupts the flow of the channels the same way to dam a dam diverts the natural flow of rivers. Cyrusists are adept at integrating their temples into cities and other urban areas, allowing them to tap nodes the Circle Oberos cannot reach. Arcanists of the Elven Retribution of Skyra have yet to compete actively with the Circle over their control of nodes in human lands, but their increased activity in recent years makes such confrontations inevitable. Toruk, Everblight, and the other dragons represent something far worse. The Dragon Blight can annihilate the natural flows altogether. In addition to its malignant effects on living creatures, dragon blight taints and corrupts the land, seeping into the soil and rock to poison the very body of Orboros. The Circle has developed techniques to correct or mitigate this, but such solutions are unreliable. The Scarred Islands, for example, were once fertile with natural energies, but now those innermost islands of Cricks are useless to the Druidic Whites due to the Perseid pervasive blight of Lord Toruk. Similarly, the recently arised Legion of Everblight is considered an urgent threat by high-ranking druids due to the alarming proliferation of dragon spawn, as well as evidence of blighted energies wielded as a weapon of war. Ooh, a lot of stuff to unpack there, but they have a lot of threats to their ley lines, so yeah, that is not good for them, but let's continue. The Circle armies exist in part to protect these mystical nodes in vital territories, and the martial might of the Order is concentrated in these places. Some of the richest fonts of, for natural powers of Orbros are situated in regions of interest to civilized kingdoms, such as near major rivers or mountain passes. These include places like the mouth of the Black River, where Caspian soul represent one of the oldest and most lasting injuries inflicted by civiliza civilization on the body of Orbros. To master this energy flow, druids have become obsessed with personal power. Blackclads are few in number, and so they are responsible of each to become formidable. They must put survival first, even if it means sacrificing others. The order is simultaneously hierarchical and populated by fiercely independent individuals. 
each with a personal interpretation of the Order's goals. As each becomes a master of the elements, he accumulates allies, guardians, and beasts of war. These can be combined to create large fighting forces. While the inevitable apocalypse of the Devourer Worm's return looms, the Circle must attend to more immediate threats. Blackclads strive daily to defend sacred rights from rivals and to deal with other perils of Ouroboros, such as the Malignant of Dragonblight. For most druids, the worsening balance between Ouroboros and civilization is a distant abstraction that has little to do with the day-to-day -day struggle. Hierarchy of the Blackclads Though the Circle employs a variety of allies and minions, it is the druids who rule the faction and make the key decisions. There are echelons of power, authority, and knowledge with their own ranks. As Circle leaders are cautious with the Order's lore, members must earn advancement before occupying leadership positions or being entrusted with the oversight of large territories. The Circle safeguards layers upon layer of secrets, and only the topmost leaders understand the organization's inner workings. This system has served for thousands of years to reward the skilled and ambitious with limiting those who fail to meet the Circle's unforgiving standards. Each blackclad is born with the potential for almost endless power. This is called the Wilding, and it is believed to the innate connection to Orbros through the arbitrary selection of the Devourer Worm. Because this ability cannot be taught, it is vitally important for the Circle to find such individuals as early as possible and provide them with the training to control their powers. Should the parents of the child undergoing the wildling be intractable, blackclads have no compunction about stealing him. Some people assume such children are slated for sacrifices to profane rites, which contributes to the Circle's sinister reputation. Over the centuries, the Circle has refined its mystical methods to find children with the ability regardless of where they are born. These efforts are aided by the fact that the Circle has records of bloodline known to manifest the Wilding. Many of these families are bound to the Wolves of Orboros, who serve as the Order's soldiers. Unlike outsiders, these families are familiar with the signs of the Wildling and willingly surrender children displaying such signs to the Druids. Young Druids at this stage are called Wilders, and most important part of early mentoring is learning guided self-mastery as every manifestation of the Wildling is different. Most Wilders begin learning to control over war beasts and branch into other arts once they demonstrate competence in that area. While learning their powers, wilders have no authority and must obey their superiors at all times. They are sometimes gathered and taken into battle as a dangerous but effective crucible for their potential. The bloody reality of warfare toughens druids to the cruel necessities of their responsibilities. Senior druids do everything in their power to preserve youthful potential, but some fatalities during this period are inevitable. Druids who survive this training period earn promotions to Warden and are trusted to supervise parcels of larger territories. Wardens maintain and protect these small regions and attend to the mystical potent stone pillars erected in each one to channel its energies or protect its nodes. Small though these regions may be, they are larger than a lone individual can patrol. Indigenous locals, not always human, often act as Warden's eyes and ears. And in times, the threat as disposable fodder, wardens inherit these relationships from predecessors and maintain them carefully, preserving them for those who will follow. During this time, 
during their time as wardens, young black lads begin to specialize in particular forms of druidic magic. Some may adopt the difficult mantle of a wayfarer or stonekeeper, focusing on ley line networks and regulating its powers through stone dedicated to the purpose of enabling large distance communications and travel. A number focus on controlling useful species like Argus, Borax, and Satyrs, and a few feel compelled to shape stone, connecting the bones of Arboros with the wold constructs. Still others revel in the summoning of destructive power of elements. Wardens who mature in power may eventually be promoted to the rank of Overseer. Overseers received added duties as well as supervising additional disconnected territories and the wardens attached to them. Often considerable differences separate these territories. It is the overseer's task to ensure wardens perform the necessary duties in their own territories, as well as gather the forces needed for larger conflicts. Not all druids are equipped to operate at this level. Some such specializations are not expected to manage subordinates. Tasking overseers to control disconnected territory serves several purposes. First, it ensures the blacklads become familiar with many different geographical regions. Of greater importance, by design, each of the overseer, overseer's territories lies within the purview of different superior potents. Because the circle's hierarchy is tied to the shifting geographical regions, overseers must prioritize tasks given them by multiple masters. An accomplishment overseers must be not only personally powerful, but also be able to prioritize his orders and accurately assess the skills of his subordinates and minions to complete delegated tasks as well. Successful overseers can be initiated by the potents into a deeper mysteries of the circle. This is the point at which many druids attempt to learn the rites required to become warlocks. Though the subordinate druids have learned the fundamentals of beast control, they lack the ability to enter in a deeper communion required to push these creatures to their fighting limits. Veteran overseers learn how to bind old constructs and living beasts completely as well as how to shunt fresh injuries to preserve themselves in battle. Few blackclads advance beyond this rank, even if they become quite powerful. Potents are the true masters and generals of the Circle Obros, composing an elite tier of druids one step removed from the highest echelons. These druids know better than most of the deeper secrets of the orders and their long-term plans. Every one of the blackclads of unique power and ability. Potent govern their diverse territories by leveraging personal abilities, charisma, bargains and bribes, old alliances and favors. No two governs a lot exactly alike. The system of the Circle Obros uses to divide responsibilities into territories is engineered to prevent fracturing in the order into cabals. When the new potent is elevated, he is given a different territory by each of the omnipotents, thereby ensuring he does not answer to a single leader. This is an ancient method to provide checks and balances between the three omnipotents, though it has not always sufficed to prevent hidden agendas and loyalties. In the course of his duties, a potent has periodic contact with the three omnipotents. During the specific conflict, he answers to whichever superior holds the dominion where it takes place. In reality, when not tasked with a specific direction, potents have extraordinary latitude and largely do as they please. 
balancing this, potents are expected to govern their territories without aid from the, their peers or subordinates. Each potent stands at the center of a web of alliances and indentured servants, with hundreds of loyal warriors drawn from subordinate druids, the wolves of Oberos, Tharn tribes, and more exotic minions. The potent territories are vast, but not equal. Some expand their dominion by reclaiming lost nodes or pushing enemies from unsurped strongholds. Among the current potents, the most pervasive and influential by far are Mervana the Autumn Blade and Kruger the Stormlord, each possessed by a necessary blend of ruthlessness, cunning, and raw power for great success. Yet even the least influential potent is a formidable master of the natural world. At the top of the circle's hierarchy of the are the three omnipotents. These figures inspire dread and awe to the rest of the order, for they alone safeguard the circle's most terrible secrets and mystical rites. They hold the legacy of the sworn pacts made at the birth of the order with primordial superpowers linked to the Devourer Worm, entities like the Lord of the Feast and the Tree of Fate. It is possible that, the, uh, that more omnipotents could be added if the group has extended its reach beyond Western Amoran. Their unique sensitivities and connections to the ley line network allows omnipotence to extend their awareness and senses throughout their vast dominions. Little of import transpires in the wilderness of Western Amorn that does not come to their attention. While their knowledge and power are great, the full scope and limits of their authority over subordinate druids are undefined and reliant on their willingness and ability to enforce obedience. As the trimitive ruler of the order, the omnipotents expect their share of commands to be obeyed, but territorial hierarchy allows creative potents leeway in interpreting dictates. The circle has long prioritized successful results over the precise orders of one superior. Certain potents, such as Kruger the Stormlord, are notorious for challenging authority. The fall of the standing omnipotents is a momentous event requiring the surviving of the triumvirate to choose the successor and initiate him or her into the inner circle. This requires special ceremonial rites that unlock the deepest roots of the druid's power. The seniority of the current omnipotence starts with Mozar, the desert walker, whose control of the eastern dominion, then Dalakov, the black crudgel, who controls the north, and Lordus the watcher, who recently elevated to control the southern dominion after the unexpected death of his predecessor, Ergonus. Ergonus was killed in battle against the strongest leaders of the Trolkan Kreels, a conflict that shattered the friendly relationship between the Circle and the Trolkan. Despite being promoted in a time of unprecedented turmoil, Lordus has risen to the challenge of his new station with admirable skill. He is widely considered the most approachable of the current omnipotents. A circle, the Circle's martial arm. Despite their powers, blackclads alone are too few to make up a force sufficient for war. Vital for, to the military strength of the order are its allies, where they are bound by ancient oaths, bribed into service, or subtly manipulated into believing they are fighting for their own terms. The most important of these groups are the soldiers drawn from the wolves of Olbros and the various tribes of the barbaric Tharn. And we have a little side note. Longevity of the Blackclads Druids maintain youthful vitality far beyond their years. 
The natural energies they draw upon extend life and afford immunity to most diseases. The impact of this longevity is particularly marked among the most powerful druids, especially those strong in healing and restorative arts. Potence and omnipotence may spend decades with their appearance virtually unmarred by the passage of time. This longevity has a limit, though. Druids are still mortal. While their deaths from violence are more common, age will eventually take its toll. Even the most powerful druids rarely live beyond twice that lifespan of an ordinary long-lived human. Oh, so they can live way longer. Well, that, that actually explains it probably for, uh, probably for Mozar. Or Mozar? He looks pretty ancient, but he also lives in the desert, too, so I can't imagine that's very good for your skin. Uh, but we actually have a, uh, an old armies list for uh, the Stormlord here. Um, I believe he has changed it quite a bit since then, but uh, this is actually kind of a fun little, uh, fun little caveat to uh, Kruger the Stormlord's old army. It's called the Stormlord's Army Forces in the Service of the Potent Kruger the Stormlord. Kruger the Stormlord has long been one of the most formidable potents of the Circle Obros. While he previously possessed a massive network of supporters, Kruger began to gather them into a cohesive army shortly after the encounter with the Old Witch of Kodor. That left him convinced he alone was the, in position to shatter the interminable stalemate between the dragons spawned by Lord Torak. In order he prepared for his momentous ordeal, he has accumulated a sizable army that he continues to grow. He has attracted the most zealots and ardent warriors of the Wolves of Orbros, as well as the most bloodthirsty and seasoned of the Tharn tribes, more loyal to Cromac than Morvana. The druids drawn to this cause respect that Kruger is a man who cannot sit idly and whose ambition could reshape the world. Man, it's weird how often you hear the old witch of Kodor pop up and a bunch of other people's stuff. It's almost like she manipulates things behind the scenes like a lot. But let's continue. Assisting Kruger in the disposition of his mighty war host are both Cromac the Ravenous, who controls the Tharn under his banner, and the Wolf Lord Morag, who leads the Wolves of Orbros. Wolf Lord Morag has gathered numerous branches of the wolves into a single force supported by twelve chieftains taken from the Scarfell Forest and Niskatha the Mountains. And the Niskatha Mountains? the Olgan Holt and the Gnarls and the Wormwall Mountains. Both Wolves and Tharn are prepared to execute complex tasks unsupported by other elements of Kruger's army if necessary, but usually Kruger prefers to allocate smaller mixed groups of Wolves and Tharn supported by Junior Blacklads. Kruger rarely engages with his entire army. He risks only that he feels is necessary to a given task. He is quite willing to commit to a variety variety of targets, unleashing Cromac against the single most ardent element of the army. Similarly, he divides his beasts and wolves among himself, Cromac, and whichever subordinate druid he deems suitable for the given engagement. Kruger has used his gathered might to make several successful strikes against Crixian forces in the southern Wormwall Mountains as part of a secret negotiations with the dragon Blightergast. His success has enabled him to seize lands that now serve as useful long-term garrisons for his army between engagements farther abroad. And let's read over his armies real quick. So we got, of course, Kruger the Stormlord as the main, followed by Cromac the Ravenous and then the Wolf Lord Morag, then Senior Warfare Telvoso, then a bunch of Overseers, 
and a bunch of Tharn chieftains. I'm not going to read their names just because, you know, with the Tharn and chieftains, they get switched out a lot if they die. And then we have the assets, 300 wolves of Obros, 1,800 reeves of Obros, 100 war wolves, 540 Tharn ravagers, 170 Tharn blood trackers, 80 Tharn blood reavers, 50 black clads, 50 wolf stalkers, 30 shifting stones with three stone keepers, six sentry stones, 30 Gatormen, 200 Faro, 20 Swamp Gobbers, 10 Heavy Wolds, Wold Watchers and Wold Guardians, 20 Light Wolds, Wold Watchers and Wold Words, 8 Warp Wolves, Ferals, Stalkers, Pureblood and the like, and 15 other Light War Beasts, Corax and Arguses. So this is a pretty formidable force and I understand why he breaks it up every now and again because trying to get all of these guys in one spot at one time would be just... Well, it would be it would be almost impossible because, uh, yeah, gator men like to eat people, and the pigs, the tafaro, they are a heck of a group to try to control. So, but you know, that's not including the Tharn, who you know just like blood for blood's sake. But let's move on. The wolves of Orboros, the rugged wilderness soldiers of the wolves of Orboros, are the most closely integrated and most numerous and best organized of the circle's allies. For many centuries after the dawn of the Order, black clads were served by these warriors of many devour worshipper tribes in the wilderness beyond civilization. These communities prayed to a variety of predatory totems, standing for the beast of all shapes and viewed black clads as the embodiment of their patron god. In time, the druids consolidated these far-flung tribes and the wolf totem eclipsed the others. The symbology of the wolf pack was immediately useful to the druids for the values they hoped to instill in their fighting forces. Wolves of Oberos trained to hunt in tightly loyal groups against prey given to them by the black-clad emissaries. Wolf weapons and methods have changed little over the centuries. They rely upon proven hunting implements that can be readily built and distributed even in small villages. Cleft-bladed weapons have long been favored by the wolves just as they are by other groups descended from those who prayed to the devourer. The spears and crossbows became traditional weapons of these hunters. Wolves are skilled warriors, first in ambush, exploiting wilderness terrain, and tirelessly tracking foes. Though they hunt and kill wolves and use their hides to adorn themselves in animalistic guises, this is an extension of their respect for these predators. Many region groups capture and train wolves to fight alongside them in battle. While all wolves are considered themselves brothers and sisters, the organization is a collection of similarly trained and equipped, but scattered and isolated armed branches. Throughout the wild territories, various bands of wilderness men and women swear oaths and of allegiance to the ancient armed society. Each regional group is the inheritor of older packs and promises made by their forebears to the blacklads. Bonds that in some cases have passed from father to son or mother to daughter since there, before history began. There is limited communication between these groups except as coordinated by the blacklads themselves. Sworn to individual druids, wolves have limited awareness of the ranks and long-term goals of the blacklads. Every generation brings new recruits, including some that are less dedicated to the circle. Some join from the simple desire to support their families and protect their remote lands. The more mercenary among the wolves rarely make it far in the organization, but sometimes they develop lasting ties of fidelity to their fighting brethren and became converts to the ceremonial traditions. 
There are only a few recognizable ranks in the organization, as most wolves are uncomfortable with the constraints of rules and regulations. Despite ensuring the martial training drills, they do not have the same well-honed discipline as military soldiers. Most warriors are part of the wolves, or reeves, depending on their discipline. Groups of wolves are led by veterans called huntsmen, with the senior most being that granted at the title of the Master of the Hunt. These respected leaders answer the regional, enter to the regional chieftains, usually the eldest and most experienced of the wolves in a given locale. The chiefs interact with the ranking blacklads directly, and through them ascertain the best of their collective forces. They are, there is no formal ranking above chief, but several notable individuals have risen to the wider prominence among the wolves, including the people as Wolflord Morag, a living legend viewed by many chieftains as brother and liege. Similarly, some druids rely hev more heavily upon the wolves. This is particularly true among those who were born in the wilderness communities alongside wolves before being initiated as druids. A few of these druids have close relationships with the warriors and adopt similar weapons and armor. The wolves bear the brunt of casualties in black-clad battles, but the circle repays this service in many ways. The om ominous reputation of the druids can shelter wilderness communities from interference by local authorities, who are usually wary of antagonizing the blacklads. Blacklads traditionally take good care of the wolves' families, including seeing to the needs of the widows or the orphans. It is said that the orphans of any fighting wolf can find fathers or mothers in every village on the fringes of civilization. The Tharn Tribes Of all the barbarian tribes who once revered the devour worm, the Tharns were the most devoted to predatory savagery. There are no fiercer enemies of civilization, and they have become an increasingly vital weapon in the Circle's arsenal. Through countless generations of devotion and sacrifice to their hungry gods, Tharns have transformed into something other than human. They deem it their primordial birthright to be able to channel the devourers, devourer into their bodies, transforming them into bestial warriors and preternatural swift hunters. They are everything civilized man fears about those who inhabit the wilds. The Tharn have endured many trials over time and would likely be extinct if not for the aid of the blacklads. Most other purely barbaric human tribes have perished or dwindled into irrelevance. The Tharn nearly suffered a similar fate after being brought into a massive border conflict between Kodor and Signar in 295 AR. The exact events that transpired after the, this clash, cloaked in supernatural uncertainties, gave rise to the affliction called the Curse of the Ten Ills. This prompted a legacy of infertility among the Tharn and pushed them into severe decline. Their numbers dwindled so dramatically, some thought they had were vanished people. Approximately 30 years of age, this curse was broken by Morvana the Autumn Blade, who not only restored Tharn fertility, but amplified it tremendously promoting the surge of births, including twins and triplets. The Tharn have rapidly regained their former numbers and stature and have demonstrated their appreciation for this miraculous intervention by committing utterly and completely into the wars of the Blacklads. The varied composition of the Tharn warbands are fierce but only loosely organized. Males and females contribute equally to the battle. Ravagers are the heavy frontline terror warriors. These males channel the power of the Devourer to transform into larger, more muscular, and hardier forms. 
Each axe-wielding Ravager is capable of horrendous slaughter, particularly when backed by their shamans. Blood Trackers, the most numerous of the female Tharn warriors, provide the agile counterpoint to the Ravagers. These hunters are experts in hurling javelins and will strike from the flanks and the rears against their chosen prey, channeling the Devourer to gain supernatural speed and to augment their predatory senses. Similarly, the Blood Trackers are the Wolf Riders, who ride their savage mounts to gain ever greater mobility, momentum, and killing power. Other Tharns, such as the Ravager Shamans and female Blood Weavers, draw on the Tharn blood magic to lend their support, slaughtering their enemies and to ex enact gruesomely effective bloodletting rituals. And I have seen those guys, and they are terrifying and bloody. So, watch out if you ever get to see them. And we have a little side note here. The Fall and Return of the Tharn. During the war between Kodor's Queen Cheris and Signar's King Malignant, Malignant? Less than a hundred years after the Corvus Treaties, the Tharn joined the conflict on the side of the Kodorans. Signarn historical records paint the Tharn in a black light during the conflict and suggest they were corrupted by Theramites, who were allegedly behind Queen Cheris's rise to power. What is not known to historians is that the Circle Obros encouraged Tharn involvement in this fight, hoping to destabilize both kingdoms. These struggles had the intended effect, weakening both monarchies while helping permanently undermine the power of the Minite faith within Signar, which was experiencing a shift in its state religion. Which it was, because I believe during that period, um, Minith was actually being pushed out by Maro religion, so yeah, that seems to happen quite a bit. But the omnipotence of the Circle Obros had a vested interest in seeing Signarn adopt the Morrowind faith and therefore further weaken the Minite's temple. This was part of a larger plan to weaken Minite and Arcane to compensate for the damage done by the, by the spread of civilization to Orbros. However, the Omnipotents did not anticipate the Morrowind backlash that would be directed at the Tharn, who were accused of being abominations and creatures of darkness. The greatest Morrowind priest invoked holy retribution on the surviving tribes. This so-called Curse of the Ten Ills proved to be tremendously powerful and debilitating affliction that defeated all subsequent attempts by both Tharn, shamans, and druids of the circle to correct it. The curse nearly proved to be the end of these tribes, weakened as they were by warfare casualties. For nearly three centuries, the Tharn suffered under this affliction, finding birth rates insufficient to replenish their numbers. It was not until Marwin, or sorry, Mervana the Autumn Blade bent her considerable power and skill to this dilemma that hope was restored. Morvana, who was already proven to be a master of living vitality, conducted a empowered rite under the auspices of rare conjunction that canes moons with a planet called Eye of the Worm. At the peak of the ceremony, and with the Tharn offering of sacrifices of numerous captured enemies, the affliction was unraveled. Morvana's rivals believed this curse may have simply been weakening from the passage of so many generations but the Tharn believed Morvana to be the instrument of their salvation. And Morvana loves that they think that. So regardless of if it was the weakening of the spell over centuries or Morvana's, you know, rights, uh, Morvana's going to say it was all her because she likes having Tharn underneath her thumb. But let's get back to the other reading. Tharn society is chaotic and primal, with the strong ruling the weak, 
Life is a swift and unforgiving circle of battles and revelry. They are fierce and passionate people, but also loyal to those who have earned their respect. Bands of Tharn warriors are led by beast lords, while tribes called Toas are led by chieftains. Given the violence of their society, longevity requires peerless skill. Eager to seize their own glory, the young watch their elders for a sign, any sign of weakness. While most Tharn Toas are isolated, periodically notable chieftains rise to special statures as kings and queens. Theoretically, any chief can call himself a king, but without widespread recognition is a hollow boast that will provoke violent challenges. Recognized kings and queens of Tharn, such as Cromac the Ravenous or Nuala the Huntress, command the loyalty of dozens of village-sized tribes across wide regions and are feared even outside their customary territories. Communications and coordination between the Druids and Tharn is fluid, though the Tharn will generally heed any black lad who comes to them. In cases of competing claims between Druids, Tharns fall back on personal relationships and oaths. The black lads have never had to resort to the subtler manipulations or deceptions they frequently have employed to enlist Trolkin Creels or wary groups of Gatormen, Faro, or Bogtrogs, or other wilderness species. Thorn are entirely willing to revel in unleashing their rage by joining battle, no matter the reason. Then we have man or beast. The line between man and beast becomes blurred in the circle. Blackclads have developed a wide assortment of powerful weapons, including those built by their own hands in stone and wood, as well as living tamed or subdued form of deep wilds. Yet some of the greatest success relate to un the unlocking of beasts within the minds and bodies that were once ordinary human beings. Warp wolves owe their origins to such techniques inspired in part from the manner in which the Tharn channeled the Devourer Worm. The hideously strong and swift and adaptable Warp Wolves have become one of the Circle's greatest weapons. For more than a thousand years, the Circle's Beast Masters have slowly evolved the process of creating them. They once used a certain alchemical mixture to help catalyze the transformation, but eventually eliminated these rudimentary aids in favor of rituals conducted at powerful ley line nodes during conjunctions of Cain's Three Moons. Once the battle is over, an exhausted feral Wolfrolf returns to his human guise, but its mind is forever altered. Just like that of the Tharn, Wolfwolves have diverged from the human origins. Even their human forms, first-generation Wolfwolves are deranged and suffer from predatory urges, extremely violent impulses, and the inability to control their tempers. Once transformed Wolfwolves can breed and produce young that carry their transformative powers but that suffer from a slightly reduced form of their mental instability. After several generations, certain of these prodigens, prodigy are purebloods and no longer revert to human forms. Besides being calmer and more accepting of their nature than feral wolf wolves, purebloods possess striking intelligence, but their minds are not human. Even to circle beastmasters, they are an enigmatic and unpredictable breed. Druids continue to refine their beast creation process, seeking to perfect balance between human intelligence and predatory rage. One of the greatest successes of these efforts is the warp-born skinwalkers, warriors taken from among the most zealous wolves of Obros to become something greater. While not as robust or as deadly as feral warp wolves, skinwalkers retain their intelligence. The circle may eventually find other ways to unleash the bestial reserves of primal power buried in the hearts and souls of mankind.
And that looks like that is it for the the ancient archives of the Circle Obros. And of course, some things changed, some things stayed the same, but you know, these uh, these archives were you know written and updated, so you know something might change. But as always, thank you guys so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, comment. Let me know if uh, you have any other pronunciations for names, because I always enjoy that. And uh, let your friends, fellow gamers, know about this podcast slash YouTube channel so we can keep this guy rolling. And another thank you to Private Press for letting us read their fantastic lore. And next week, we are going to be going over the ancient archives. Well, not really ancient, but we're going to be going over the archives of the Kodor history as well. And then we will move on from there. But thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, class dismissed.